Father, we do thank you for your wonderful, abundant mercy in Jesus Christ. Lord, we deserve eternal wrath for how we have violated your truth, your law. We've violated one another, we've hurt one another, and yet, Lord, you sent your Son to pay the penalty for all those sins. And your mercy is so great that we'll be singing for it, not just now, but forevermore. We praise you for it. We pray for any of those who are with us who have not experienced that mercy. We pray that they would understand the gospel, understand their need for the gospel, turn to Christ, repent, and have faith even today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is such a tremendous blessing to be back with you, my church family, my home, my ohana, and I just want to thank you again for all of your love and well-wishing while we were gone. I was thinking while we were there and as I was looking at uh, what I would be preaching on today that uh, it's quite strange that I consider Oklahoma City home. I lived in Oklahoma City from age 10 to age 21, so 11 years there. Then I went back and lived there again for three more years, my late 20s. So of my 47 years, I've only lived there 14 years. And I thought to myself, it's kind of odd that I think of Oklahoma City as home, and I probably will always think of Oklahoma City as home, regardless where I live. And I got kind of reflect about this, and I wondered, well, why, why is this? What is home? What's the definition of home? Why do I think of Oklahoma City as home? What makes it something uh, homey. In short, I, be, I think it's because when you think of home, you think of the way you think things ought to be, right? Perhaps you were raised somewhere, and I think this is probably my case with Oklahoma City. I was, the, the formative years of my life were there, and you think you were raised in such a way, people mowed their lawns in such a way, they rooted for certain ball teams, they had certain twang to their accent, and so in your mind, that represents, well, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way things are meant to be. People drive like you. People mow their lawns like you. People keep their houses, go to similar churches. More than that, there at home is peace and love. For me, it's namely my wife's family, and I have a father and sister who are there. The people who are there love you. They care for you. They worship the God you worship. You look around all these things, ultimately, that brings peace to your heart. And that really is ultimately what home is about. It's about peace. You know where things are. You know what restaurants to go to. You know what friends to call up. And you hadn't talked to them in 10 years. And in five minutes, it's like you've never missed a beat. Of course, now that I've lived here, almost as long as I lived in Oklahoma City, I'm starting to feel the same things about Hawaii. I've always told people, Hawaii, or at least Honolulu, is the best place to come home to. Amen. Don't you love when there's, usually there's trades, and when there's trades, you, you fly in, you make that loop over the ocean, and if you're sitting on the left side, the port side of the plane, you look out the window, and you can see Koalina, Makakilo, you can even sometimes spot the church as you come in, and it's always a little bumpy because there's wind, and you can just feel your, your stress sort of washing away. You get off the plane, you you walk through that air-conditioned terminal part, and then you come out of that gate area, and there's that Hawaiian breeze. 
and you look up and you can see the mountains, and there's always sunshine, and you just sort of feel relaxed. I'm, I'm finally home. And I can come back to the church family that I love and that I know, and I, I know who my doctor is, and I know where I get my hair cut, and I know where, what restaurants I like. I know where everything is. There's a certain level of peace and love. But I got to thinking, whether you are thinking of home in terms of where you lived as a child or coming back like I am to the where, where, where I live now, ultimately, there's no ultimate peace, no real peace wherever you go, right? Things change. People close their restaurant, your favorite restaurant. Neighbors move out and strange neighbors move in. Maybe the ones before were strange, but you were used to that strangeness. <laughs> Things change around you. Laws change, principles change, population changes. I think one of the reasons that we who live here in Hawaii struggle with the constant flow of, of military and vacationers is sometimes it's, it's just too much change, and we get used to something, and then it's changed, and we get used to something, and it's changed, and too much change it wrecks havoc on peace. The truth of the matter is there is no real home anywhere on earth. There's no perfect place. There's no place that provides you with true, eternal, lasting peace and full of genuine love. Any place we go to, there's corruption and sin and change. On top of that, even, even as you grow older, your own body begins to change. And a body that you used to have peace living in because there was no illness, suddenly it starts to break down. And now you're riddled with trying to find doctors and finding peace in your own body. This is true even for our spiritual lives. We battle sin. There's no peace. There's a lack of genuine love. And so we find ourselves longing for another home. Longing for a home where everything is as it should be. Where there is total and eternal peace. Where there, was, there is persistent and perfect love. Well, as Christians, we know where that home is, don't we? Our home is not here. Our home is in heaven with the Lord. We are marching to Zion. We're a people who look to a heavenly home. We're, we're just a traveling through, as the old song used to sing. We're sojourners in this place, in this body, in this life, in this world. Our home is beyond the grave. We long for that home. We hope for that home, and we look forward to that home, so much so that we write songs about it and think about it and sometimes lay in bed at night when things aren't going well, and we long for the day that we will be home. So a big question in the Christian life is if this is not our ultimate home, how do we respond? How do we live life in this place that is temporary for us? How do we respond to hardship and persecution? How do we respond to health issues, 
mental issues? How do we respond to family issues, the upheaval, the constant upheaval of politics and war and things going on in the world around us? How do we respond even to the communities we live in and our families? Do we do what the, the old aesthetics did? They, they moved away. If you're like me, during COVID, you were looking at land in Idaho, <laughs> figuring out what it would cost to live off the grid, solar panels, a well, try to figure out, can I do this? Is this possible? It's funny, I was telling this to one of my friends during the, the COVID when it was really, the crisis was really high, and I was telling my friend, yeah, I find myself on Zillow looking at property in Idaho, and and he began to laugh. I said, well, he says, I do the exact same thing in the exact same state. I look at Idaho as well. And I said, what's funny about it is there's probably some Idaho pastor looking at Hawaii going, man, maybe I can get to Hawaii. Is that what we do? We just move away and try to free ourselves of all of that? Well, the problem with that is, and the early monks dis discovered this, you can't get away from your own problems, your own sin, your own health issues, you're still going to face those things. It's still going to be painfully obvious that you're not home. What if we just do the opposite? What if we just adapt and adopt? If you can't, if you can't beat them, join them. Why not just become as a, a sinner just like everyone else and just join in and just seek pleasure? Become a hedonist. Why not just do that? Is that what we should do? Or maybe just find a way to compromise. Okay, we'll do some Christian things, but also we'll do some things that are more fleshly. Just find a, li a life of compromise. Well, one of the books in the Bible that addresses this issue is the book of 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter with me, if you will. Peter the Apostle wrote this letter to Christians who, due to persecution, had to flee their homes and were living almost like the Old Testament exiles did. They were living in a foreign land far from home. They were the chosen people of God. They were the elect exiles. And Peter wanted to address these folks. The book of 1 Peter is a Catholic book, often called a general epistle. Catholic not meaning the religion, Roman Catholicism, Catholic meaning universal. It was written to, to all Christians to address a generic, broad Christian audience. If you think about it, the other books, a number of the other epistles in the New Testament were written to specific people for specific reasons. If you think about the Corinthians, Paul wrote the book of Corinthians to the people at Corinth there at that church were struggling with purity and division. He wrote uh, a, what's called a, a circular letter to a region of people, a region of churches, a number of churches in a certain region that were battling a certain heresy called Judaism or Judaiz the Judaizers. Paul wrote to the Colossians to instruct them about Christology. They needed to be secure and sound in the truth of Christ and not be carried away by other imaginative doctrines. 1 Peter is a general epistle. It was written to many different people in many different situations. And therefore, 1 Peter is one of the most applicable books in the Bible, immediately applicable. It's not to say the other books aren't applicable and we can't draw great truths from them. But 1 Peter, as a general epistle, as a Catholic epistle, is a, is a book that you immediately pick up and see, oh, this, is, this is right where we are. This is what we're going through. And even me saying what I've said at this point, you, you, you say, yeah, this is not our home. 
The, the political season is ramping up. All these things are getting hotter and hotter. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of banter, a lot of change in our country and the people around us. We're not home. How do we live in this world? Now, First Peter addresses this. All right, First Peter, by way of introducing this book to us uh, in our study the next uh, few months or next year or so, I'm just going to read and study the first two verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 today. Let me read them. Follow along as I read it aloud. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. The Peter here is, of course, the Peter we have learned in the Gospels. As you remember, Peter was sort of the leader of the apostles, probably the only married guy and thus probably the oldest of the apostles. And he was the de facto leader of these apostles. We know all about Peter. We know all about his failures, but also his successes. He did things. He, he really demonstrated for us the greatest level of faith of all the apostles and the greatest level of faithlessness of all the apostles. Peter was the superlative of all the apostles. Whatever you could say about the apostles, if you put EST on the end of it, that was Peter. He was the greatest. He was the worst. He was the one that showed the greatest amount of love and also showed the greatest amount of hate and was immature and was also very mature. That was Peter. The Holy Spirit moved in Peter, and Peter became, as this leader, he became really the spokesman. And we see this at Pentecost. Peter is the first one to preach a Christian sermon. Peter preaches there at Pentecost and, and becomes, again, sort of the de facto leader of this entire movement. He and some others, James, the brother of Jesus being one of them, he and some other men led that initial church there in Jerusalem that was made up of probably ten to 15,000 people who had been saved right there in those early days. As time went on, Peter became a missionary. The, the elders, the other elders of that church, sent Peter and others out to take this message to places where Christ had not been proclaimed. In fact, they did this as, a direct, uh, as direct obedience to what Jesus had said, "'You shall be my witnesses.'" There at the beginning of the book of Acts, the end of the book of Matthew, this great commission that they should take this message to the world. And that's what Peter did. Peter began to go, he began to do mission work with Silas and others. Of course, his team was not just him and another elder, his team was made up of a number of people. In fact, uh, John Mark, you remember the book of Mark was written by a fellow named John Mark. And we don't know that he ever became a pastor, ever became an elder of a church, but we do know that he was really Peter's assistant, Peter's right-hand man. John Mark was with him, others were with him as he began to take the gospel abroad. Peter found himself in the city of Rome in the early 60s A.D., 
This is when he wrote the book of 1 Peter in the early 60s A.D. And if you know anything about Western culture or Western history, you know in the early 60s the Roman Empire dominated that part of the world, all the southern half of Europe, in fact, all the way to England, a big chunk of the Middle East and North Africa was all the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire in the early 60s was governed by a Caesar by the name of Nero. Nero, I just say his name, many of you probably think persecution. He was a persecutor of the church. Nero was not the first persecutor of the church, nor was he the worst persecutor. There would be later uh, Caesars that would come along, Diocletian being one of them, who would persecute the church much more broadly and much more thoroughly. But Nero was the one that got a name for it. Nero, really seeking to advance himself, sort of used the Christian movement. He didn't like them anyway, but he sort of used the Christian movement as a way of gaining politically. And so there were periodic rounds of persecution. These were often localized. It wasn't just all over the whole empire. Oftentimes it was just in certain places where he needed to get things done. But he became known and really synonymous, at least in our, our minds, in, ter- in terms of church history, as the persecutor of the church. Well, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter was there in Rome most likely where a number of, well, we know, a number of persecutions had taken place. And Peter was writing to people who had fled. People, I'm sure, from Rome, people from other cities. He was writing to these people who had fled. He calls Rome Babylon. Sort of harking back to that Old Testament exile, that mentality, that language of the people who had been dispersed. In fact, there became a name back then in the Old Testament, the diaspora, the God's people dispersed. It became the name synonymous with the persecution of Jewish people, the persecution of Christian people. As as persecution happens, people are killed, people are tortured, and many people run away. You can imagine all the families, if you were a father of a family, maybe persecution was coming, you wanted your kids to live So you packed up your family, you moved to Idaho. For them it would have been Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia. And your family packed up and you got all your stuff and you got out of Rome as quickly as you possibly could because you wanted your family to survive. You were dispersed and that's to whom Peter is writing this letter. These people were strangers in a strange land. And Peter's going to demonstrate this is not just true about your earthly location is true of every, all of your life, really, until Jesus returns. As Peter is addressing these exiles, these elect exiles. We can identify with this, right? I mean, this is, this is something that's becoming more and more clear. This very week, the people who govern the state of California ruled that your child's sexuality is a state thing. And if you don't agree with your child and the state about their sexuality, you will be put in prison. You can look it up and find out. People will be persecuted. People will be, their children will be ripped away from them. And so people are leaving that state. They're moving. Migration is happening. That great state that's grown for so many years consecutively now is shrinking and shrinking because of persecution. We can identify with this. We can see it even across international lines where wars happen and great swaths of people begin to move 
these people had moved away, and Peter is writing them to encourage them and to help them survive in a strange world. Those whose citizenship is in heaven, not ultimately there. How are we going to live? Well, because of this, a lot of people call 1 Peter a gospel primer, a, a, a gospel message that shows us how to live the gospel truths in our lives in this temporary world. Really what 1 Peter is. It's going to demonstrate for us how do we live life, how should we then live if, if, if we have our citizenship in heaven, if ultimately we're supposed to be in heaven, if that's ultimately where we belong, how should we live in this life? And Peter takes the gospel and applies it to us. The gospel, the message of Christ crucified and, and all the themes that surround that, that's not just something that's a, a point in our history. It's not just something we acknowledge at one point and then we moved on to do other things in our life. No, the gospel defines us. It changes us. The point of salvation is the beginning of a gospel-driven life. And he's going to demonstrate for us how we live that life in a world where we are not ultimately citizens. Now, many of us are enthusiastic about your roots. You've done the genetic testing. You look at your genealogy. You're enamored with the stories and the people of your past. Well, this is our spiritual, if you're a Christian, this is our spiritual and theological genetics. If you look at the genetics of a spiritual person, on that DNA is the gospel. And that ought to reveal itself in our lives, and Peter's going to show us how, even though we're living as strangers in a strange land, living in exile. Now, what Peter does is he starts out with an idea about who we are. This is number one, if you're taking notes, who we are. He gives a description. He calls us and calls the people to whom he's writing these letters, this letter, elect exiles, elect Exiles. Other translations will say chosen strangers. Seems a bit of an oxymoron. You're chosen, you're special, but you're an exile. And Peter does this, he brings us face to face with the doctrine of election. I can hear your eyes rolling in the back of your head. What does the Bible say about this word? This comes up a lot in the New Testament especially. It did in the Old Testament as well. The idea of being God's elect. What in the world could this mean? Now, there's an old Arminian dodge about election, and it goes something like this. Well, election is the fact that God in time past looked forward through the quarters of time and saw people responding to the gospel, and therefore God made a decision then to choose them because of what they were doing, choosing Him in the future. Now, you understand this interpretation is logically incoherent. Why? Well, if God is simply choosing people to save based upon their choice of Him, then He's not actually choosing anything at all. This title, elect exiles, becomes absolutely meaningless because this is not election, this is reaction. Worse yet, God is removed as 
the sovereign in salvation. If a king, or maybe I should say president, is just a puppet, and people are telling him what to sign and what to do and what declarations to make, even what to say, is he really sovereign, or is it the person behind him or the people behind him? God is not sovereign in salvation if everyone is just telling him, basically, you have to rubber stamp our choices, what we've done. No, God has complete authority and rule in salvation. Now, this doctrine is admittedly hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to accept. How do we explain our responsibility to repent, to have faith, to pray, to evangelize? If God is sovereign in all this, how is it fair? And that's always a question that people ask. How is this fair? We live in a democracy. Doesn't everybody deserve the same chance? Aren't they offered the same opportunity? How is this fair that God would elect anybody? We studied this some years ago. Paul asked this very question about election in Romans chapter 9, beginning in 14. What shall we say then? Talking about, he'd just spoken about how God chose Jacob, not Esau. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the answer is, no one deserves salvation, right? To say, it's not fair, doesn't everybody need the same chance? No, no one deserves any chance. We're all sinners, we're all beggars, we're all failures from the beginning. What we need is a God who has mercy, is a God who lays out His mercy for us. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, this is Paul speaking again in Romans 9, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So in the end, the doctrine of election, though it's hard for us to understand, hard for us to accept, in the end we just acquiesce and we say, you know what? We are the molded. We are clay. God is mighty. Somehow it all works out that we are responsible to choose God, to evangelize, to pray, to come to Him. To, we have responsibility. We have human responsibility. Somehow our will is involved. But ultimately, God's election is what determines who is saved. And we have to say, I don't know how it, it makes sense. I, God is infinite. I am finite and my brain cannot wrap around it. But I accept it because it's simply stated in the Bible. Trust me, folks, we want it this way. We don't want a God who responds and needs human activity to do what He's going to do. We don't want a God who bows to human will. We want a God who has everything settled and secure and sure. That we, we want a God who has history mapped out all the way to His return, every detail of it. We don't want a God who can be shoved around by events or human decision or indecision.
Let me just add this. To have something that we can't fully understand, this ought to be the norm for us, right, as Christians? His ways are higher than our ways. You really think that you can wrap your mind around the mind of God, fully explain it? No, you can't. It shouldn't be some kind of new novel concept that we cannot explain every last idea of God, that we can't explain God's sovereignty and the interplay of His sovereignty and human responsibility, that we can't resolve that in our mind should not be a huge surprise to us. Our minds are finite and weak. You and I prove it every day, how weak and how feeble-minded we are. Of course we're going to struggle with these infinite themes of God's election and human responsibility. Well, how does this idea of being elect, of being chosen, how does this idea of being elect exiles help us? And I would say, first of all, it brings us magnificent security, doesn't it? Because the decision, we do make a decision to choose God, but because that decision is predicated on His choice of us first, because that decision is not ultimately on us, it's not dependent on whether or not we remain His child or not. He's already decided it. Our childhood of God is not ultimately with us, it's ultimately with Him. If we've been elected before the foundation of the world, if we've been chosen to be one of His children before the foundation of the world, if that's something the counsel of God decided before creation, then we cannot do anything to unravel that decision. Some of the most encouraging verses in the Bible make this plain. Paul said in Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? In other words... This all began in the mind of God. It all began with a decision of God Almighty. It does not rest on our feeble, finicky decision-making. It ultimately rests on God, and we rest secure. Now, let me tell you something. If my salvation, the security of my salvation rested in me, I'd have lost it a long time ago. So what have you? So this gives us great encouragement that our salvation rests in God and a covenant in God's mind, this is why Isaiah said in 49, 16, that God has engraved us on the palm of His hands. And Jesus said in John 10, 20, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Earlier in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You see how this idea of God's election before the foundation of time is tied all the way to the end where we're glorified and go to heaven. We have this security, not because of our power, not because of our decision-making or our spirituality. We have this confidence because God has done this start to finish. In the midst of our troubles, 
the midst of our sin, in the midst of our persecution, do we elect exiles need to be reminded of who we are? Elect exiles? You better believe it. We need to remember that we're inscribed on the palm of His hand, that our names are written in the book of life and nothing can blot it out. The people to whom Peter wrote, they needed this. We need this. That we have a God. In spite of all that's going on around us, in spite of the fact that we're becoming more and more the minority in this country, in this world, that we have a Father in heaven, and we have a family. And it's not ultimately by us. It's not ultimately because of us. It's because of God's eternal decision from before time began. So no matter what trouble we come into, no matter what failure we face in our own hearts, this brings us deep and great security that we are elect. Don't be afraid. This doctrine is not prideful. It's actually the opposite of pride, right? Because what you're saying is God chose before I did anything, before I did anything, before I made any spiritual decision, God made His decision. I did nothing to merit this. It is simply based on the purposes and grace and mercy of God. What else does this idea of being elect exiles, this title of who we are, what else, how else does it encourage us? What it does is it guarantees the work of the Spirit in our life. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. We have this work that God began. And God will continue to work in you. God doesn't leave any of His artwork unfinished. You know, you think about this. There's, there's all these famous painters, famous songwriters. Almost all of them have a number of unfinished works and they died. God will have none. He will finish everything that He started. And if He saved you, He will finish that work. He will continue to paint and work on you and work on you, and you will grow and mature and persevere all the way to the end, to the day you're glorified. Being elect doesn't mean simply that God chose you and then He just sort of lets you go at that point. No, it means that He begins a work in you. He has a plan for your life. And he executes that plan of growth, maturity, progress. This title, Elect Exiles, also gives us confidence that we, I mentioned this a moment ago, that we do have a family, right? Some of you did not grow up with a family. Maybe you grew up with an unsaved family. You're moved maybe around foster homes, perhaps. Or maybe you figured out even your blood family, they don't really love God, they don't really love you. The truth is, all of us, even those of us with good families, have these feelings, right? You go to places, a new job, a new neighborhood, a new location, and you, you feel out of place. Everybody seems to know what they're doing, except for you. All of us have been in these situations. And it's good to have this confidence back in your mind that you have a family. You, you have brothers and sisters and a father. You have a family. And you have a home. We know that no matter what, we have this family. And it's, of course, it's represented in a local church, right? It's expressed on this earth in a local church. You don't get to feel that. You know, a lot of times you find these Christians who 
who kind of act like they can sort of live the Lone Ranger Christian life and they can sort of live in Idaho, spiritually speaking, and they can go do whatever they want to do and live the way they want to live and never go to church and teach themselves. Well, first of all, they're breaking all kinds of instruction in the New Testament about not forsaking the assembly. But worse than that, they deprive themselves of family, real family, family who loves them and cares for them and wants to help them in their time of need. Being elect exiles reminds us, that idea reminds us that we're part of a family. A fourth and final application I'll give here, particularly relevant to 1 Peter, it helps us know that even in our hard circumstances, even these circumstances are appointed by God. This is all part of God's plan, even the hardship. Do you remember what Paul told the Philippians chapter 1, verse 29? Listen carefully. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, that's doctrine of election, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe, but also suffer for His sake. It's part of God's plan that we would join in the sufferings of Christ, that we would face hardship, difficulty, live in this hard, harsh world. But Peter begins this wonderful epistle by reminding us who we are. Number two, Peter also tells us what He's done for us. What has the triune God done for us? Indeed, Peter breaks it down in triune language. What has the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, what has the triune God done for His elect exiles? Look there again in First Peter. Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, first phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, some people here say, well, there it is, Pastor John. It's not some sort of divine election. It's just that God knows something beforehand. That's foreknowledge. That's the meaning of foreknowledge, and that's what foreknowledge is. God simply knows what's going to happen. He doesn't elect it. He just knows about it, right? Well, I'm glad you asked about this. Let's see how Peter uses that word foreknowledge in this very chapter. Look down in verse 20. talks about Christ, that lamb without blemish or spot. He says there in verse 19, beginning of verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So if he says Jesus was foreknown to be the sacrificial lamb, does that mean God... God had nothing to do with it. He just knew what was going to happen. Or does that word foreknown mean He planned it out precisely? Well, it means He planned it out precisely. He set His loving plan in motion with Jesus at the centerpiece where Jesus would go to the cross. So the, the word elect, the word chosen, the word foreknown is used for Christ and it's also used for us. God just as He did with Christ, foreknew Christ. He planned His life out. I just mentioned that passage in Romans 8, 29. Those whom He foreknew, what? He predestined. He planned out their destiny. He planned out their life. Clearly, God, clearly it's not saying God just knew about them, was aware of them, was aware of what the future would hold for them. He chose them and He executed His 
plan for them. So that idea of foreknowledge is not just knowing something beforehand. It's God setting His loving plans and purposes upon us. Same thing we see in Matthew 7, 23, except we see the opposite. Jesus said, many people will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these religious and spiritual things for you? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Does that mean Jesus, God, the Godhead, never was aware of them? No, it means he never set his loving purpose upon them, his loving foreknowledge upon them. He knew about them, but he never set his loving, predestinating, intimate love upon them. Well, that's what God the Father does in our salvation. He elects us, He foreknows us, He predestines us. That's what God does. All of our decisions to choose God, to repent, to have faith, all of that is predicated on one fact, that God has chosen us. And if you say anything otherwise, you, you begin to take credit God chose me because I chose Him. God chose me because I made the right decisions. God chose me because I have a fork on the road and I decided to do the God thing. No. God chose you because of nothing you did, right or wrong. It was according to His purposes, His plan, the counsel of His own will. Ephesians chapter 1 says, it was for His glory, not yours. That's what God does in salvation. And you have to just stop and, and realize in life as I live this life in this broken and crooked world, you have to stop and realize the gracious love and kindness of God that He would elect a sinner such as me. I don't deserve it any more than Hitler deserved it. I don't deserve it any more than anybody else in this world deserved it. It's just God's gracious kindness, and I give Him all the glory. What about the Spirit? The middle of verse 2 in the sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctify means to set apart for a purpose. You think of that word sanction we use for nations. We set apart people for not a holy purpose, but we set apart nations and people uh, for doing the wrong thing. Maybe it's a sort of punishment. But to sanctify is to set apart for a, a special purpose, a holy purpose. God has regenerated, and now, regenerated us by His Spirit and by His Spirit, He now is setting you apart for a purpose. Isn't that good? When you go through struggles, when these people living in the weird world out there, when they felt so out of place and so frustrated with all the hardship to know that God has me alive for a special purpose, the Spirit is doing something in me and through me for God's glory. That's, that's encouraging. That's what the Spirit has done on our behalf. In salvation, you can see this as what the Spirit does. In fact, Jesus talks about what the Spirit does in salvation. It's known sometimes as effectual calling or irresistible grace. What does the Spirit do? Well, Jesus tells us what the Spirit does talks about the Spirit as the helper, the comforter, the paraclete. John chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit comes to us, makes our heart alive, meaning He he looses us from our worldly philosophies, the moorings that tie us to the world, the, the doctrines and theology of the world. He looses us from these things and awakens us to the truth of the gospel. He convicts us of sin, Jesus said, shows us what we really deserve. I deserve. God would be righteous and just and even loving to judge me eternally. That's what I deserve. Concerning uh, judgment, that one day judgment is coming. Concerning righteousness, that Christ has provided a way out. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the, in the act of regeneration. He pulls us away. He looses us from those moorings and, and sets us apart makes us alive, and then compels us to believe the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. What a beautiful thing. The Spirit sanctifies us. God has set me aside for a special purpose. That's why I live as a Christian in this world, this broken world. Finally, Jesus says... uh, uh, Well, yeah, Jesus says He awakes them, He convicts them concerning judgment about the world that is to come. We become aware of the idea that judgment day is coming, that our home is indeed not here, that judgment day is coming, and God will one day separate the sheep and the goats. And by His grace, He has made us a sheep. That's what the Spirit does. He opens us to these things. So verse 2 again, the foreknowledge of God the Father, we are elect exiles according to the knowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and we've been set aside Our sins brought to our mind, His truth brought to our mind, and it's compelled us to obey Him for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with His blood. Now, this is where the act of Jesus comes into play. We realize the work of Jesus on the cross, sprinkled with His blood, it says. The idea, it's an Old Testament idea, right? They would do these different sacrifices... Of course, we think of the atoning lamb, the red heifer. They would make this sacrifice. The the priest would then dip this little um, uh, feathery type plant, hyssop, into this uh, blood, sometimes mixed with water, and then he would fling it over the congregation to represent the fact that they've been covered by the blood of that animal, that sacrificial animal. In other words, that animal took your place. It's an atoning work, and you've been covered by the blood. You've been sprinkled by the blood. So we realize that that's what Jesus has done for us. He has laid down His life so that we can be sprinkled by His blood. Our salvation, the fact, beginning with God's election of us, our salvation is a triune act. God the Father... God the Son, God the Spirit, all three come together to save us. What a wonderful, joyous thought, right? We live in this world to know that the triune God has acted on our behalf, has brought us to the point of salvation. And Jesus Himself going through all the torture of sin and death, not because of His own sin, but because of our sin, so that we could be sprinkled by His blood. What a glorious 
truth. The result of all this, does God, when He saves a soul, does God just sweep us into heaven immediately? Well, that would be nice. But God has a different plan. He wants us to demonstrate on earth as aliens that we are like Christ. You know, Christ came to this earth as an alien. Christ came to this earth as a different person, not an alien, you know, dee-boo-dee-boo, but <laughs> as someone who doesn't belong, as someone who's not really a part of this broken system. And what God wanted to do is to leave people to represent that Christ to this world, to live in this broken world just as Christ did, as Christ's body, speaking as Christ does. He wants to demonstrate on earth that we too are aliens and we too have a different home just as Christ did. God wanted to leave people on earth also so that we would proclaim the the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness to the others of those whom are God's elect. And we don't know who they are. So we proclaim it to everyone, proclaiming what Christ has done. He leaves us to speak of as this marvelous grace. He leaves us to sing and gather and encourage one another. He brings us together in these churches so that we can represent His glory here. Well, this brings us to that last phrase there in verse 2, and it answers the question, number 3, how then should we live? Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you, all of these wonderful truths, who we are, which is by the choice and action of a triune God, all these wonderful truths and blessings should be alive, multiplying among us. These things should be alive. These realities of who we are and what God has done, these realities ought to be alive in us should be multiplied among us, grace and peace. And you can see this. As you look through the, the book of 1 Peter, you can sort of see this, this setup as, as Peter is writing these people. Chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, we're just swimming in these realities, these truths of what God has done for us, of who we really are. All these magnificent blessings granted to us brings us joy, confidence, security, then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he begins to apply it to our lives. What do we do? How do we respond to all this? Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which, are at, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, you are there as a light. You are there as citizens of another kingdom with a different God and you don't obey the passions of your flesh like the world does. You conduct yourselves in a different way. That's sort of general instruction and then we get to the sort of final part of the book 4 verse 10 and 11. Beloved, that's kind of the marker there. He addresses them directly. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this is how you're going to act even when you're under trial, even when you have cancer, even when the legislature is kicking out Christians and doing things against common sense and certainly against God. 
And so we'll learn even more specific as we get to that point of how we live in a world that's crushing in around us. The last few verses, last couple verses, 10 or 11, at the end of the, to the end of Peter, he wrapped up this letter. What magnificent instruction. I pray that you'll be here for the entirety of this sermon series through the wonderful book of 1 Peter. All right, let's pray that God would grant us understanding and joy. Then I want to give a benediction, which is really I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5 as we part. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful little epistle written to exiles. Just like us, people who live in a strange world, a world that even if there are moments and times and places where there's not persecution, even though there's eras and sometimes countries where there's not persecution, we know that the human race, because it is cursed, always gets around to hating you, hating those who follow you. And Lord, we see this even in our own culture today. What we say, even the words that I've said today, some people consider hate speech. When we live in a day where what we say and what we do, we're, we're persecuted, at least verbally right now, and it won't be long before we find persecution in a physical way. Parents who want to discipline and raise their children properly, in the very near future, we put in prison for trying to do the right thing. We live in a hard day, Lord. Teach us through our study of 1 Peter how we should live in this broken world. Lord, I pray that through understanding this, that you will have spoken to people about your Son, people who don't know you yet, who have not repented. Lord, bring to their mind and their heart the truth of Christ crucified. And I pray they would come to you through his blood, repenting of their sins and having faith in Christ even now. We ask this in his name. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever.